All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans 9, we're going to finish up chapter 9 this morning. Uh, we're in verses 27 through 33, and as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with today. Again, it's a truth we've heard many times, and as, as with things that we've heard many times, we can kind of go, yeah, 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 I got it, and not hear it afresh, and not let it uh, do its work in our hearts and minds for the glory of God and for the sake of the world, for the life of the world. So the key truth is this, is that God's salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone. Let me say that again. God's salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 9, 27 through 33. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, let's remember that Romans chapter 9 is uh, Paul essentially discussing uh, God's instrumentality and goodness in salvation. So all throughout, he, he's been uh, unpacking that God is the promise keeper, that he is the one who held the lineage through the patriarchs, through, through the, the seed of the woman, essentially, spiritually, not physically, but he is the one who made sure that the promises were true. And if you know any of those patriarchal stories, you know that they did everything they could to make them not true in some ways, right? Like there was all kind of things that they did, Abraham being one of them, that, that would have actually ended God's covenant if it were in his power. Now, if you remember the Abraham and, and Sarah story, did he do it maliciously? No, he had the best of intentions, if you remember. And that's what's so dangerous. And one of the things that Paul's trying to get us to see and that I think we desperately need to see in order to actually be missional as a church. That the most dangerous thing to the church isn't sinners who don't know their right hand from their left, to quote Jonah, but believers or so-called believers who act as if they don't know their right hand from their left, who essentially try to earn salvation or earn God's love or display to the world that, that we are more loved than you as opposed to a hospitable invitation. That will destroy the church far faster than a group of sinners coming in and not knowing the liturgy, not knowing the songs, not knowing how to act some Sundays. And so it is important that we recognize the instrumentality of God in salvation, and it's him alone, his grace alone, in Christ alone, uh, through faith alone. Now, chapter 10, he's going to begin to unpack the human instrumentality in salvation. 
uh, in, in the ways in which we are invited to participate, in the ways in which we come to know Christ. Uh, but that's, that's for future sermons. But, but we're going to finish up here seeing, yet again, Paul's going to put together a bunch of verses from Isaiah in this case. In fact, he puts verses together in ways that we're not super comfortable with. Like he's just stitching things together. There's a, a tapestry. He's just slapping stuff on top of stuff. No seminary would, would, would say, preach a sermon like that or do that. But, but Paul did. And he knew his audience. And he knew that they would get more of the context. So again this week, we're going to look back into the Old Testament and read to make sure we have the context of what Paul's trying to say. And what I hope that we will see is that he is, he is calling a rebellious people to repentance. See, I think that's part of our problem. We just don't think we're all that rebellious. We think we're, we're kind of decent people, right? We cut our grass. Uh, we, we, we vote. We pay taxes. You know, we give a little to the poor every now and again. Uh, and so we, we think we're pretty good people who could get better, for whom Christ makes us better. And I think we have a low view of God's holiness, which is why we, we say, in essence, uh, of God, I, just, I read the Old Testament, I just think he needs to relax. Like, I get it, he's holy and everything, but, but you know, uh, give us a break. Life is hard. The world is fallen. We suffer. Don't I, don't, shouldn't I be able to sin a little bit? Shouldn't I be able to skip worship some? I mean, come on, man. Just relax. And his holiness doesn't move us. And the gravity of the situation is lost on us. It is, it is eternal. The issue is not now. It's forever. And so we would do well to recognize some of that gravity because that is what affects how we read some of these things. Right? Like if you think it's just kind of a neutral people just doing a few things. No, these folks were shedding innocent blood. They were taking advantage of the people that Isaiah's talking to. They were taking advantage of the widow and the orphan. Should we relax on that? They were doing things to the poor and, and exploiting them and shedding innocent blood and treating each other in ways that, that were not good. Should, should we just relax on that? I can guarantee you wouldn't if you were the oppressed. Suddenly your voice would get quite loud. You would start to look like you had an attitude. And some other things as well. And so it is important that we recognize this. Now the question I have to open up actually uh, is how do you typically view things that are free? Now psychology, they've done all kind of studies on this by the way. As a, as a consumer, is it better to offer something free or at a discount? Which actually has the better result? The discount. Why? What do we think of free things? Something's got to be wrong with it. You can't just give stuff away, right? Like, who does that? What idiot just gives something away for free? Or we're suspicious of it. I bet it's got a little camera in it or something. I bet it's got a little microphone in it. I just, that's just an iPhone, by the way. And they're not free. Uh, and so, but we're really suspicious of free stuff. Think about how now the thing is like, I'll offer you a free trial. You just have to remember to unsubscribe on the, and I love this, the eighth day. <laughs> right? <laughs> not, you know, the, the religious nature of it's not lost on me. Not seven days, because you, the eighth day is just, hard. What? where's an eighth day? Who counts like that? Right? And so you end up paying, a, they at least sneak one month out of you because you're going to forget. In fact, I've got one right now that today is the eighth day, I think. 
but I don't know for sure. <laughs> and I don't unsubscribe on the Sabbath, so they got it. So, so think about this. This is very important. Every single one of us is suspicious of anything that is free. We, we just don't have it now. Let's roll it. So that's already our mindset. So then we start talking about God's free grace. <laughs> Salvation is free. Now, some of us are kind of snarky, and we go, but not to Jesus it wasn't. He died, right? And that's true. That, that side of the ledger is not free. God paid it all. So in essence, it's not that it was free in toto. It's just free to us. And we're suspicious of it. Let's be honest. We come by that honest, and we need to wrestle with that because again and again and again, we're like, yeah, I mean, I get what we did, what we said in the assurance of pardon that if you just say and you're saved, but surely you got to do, you got to clean something up before you come. Like you got to, you got to bring something to the table, right? It's one of the reasons why many of you may struggle to take communion later this morning. Not because you don't think you're saved, but because you think you probably did something that makes you no longer worthy. And that would be devastating for you to think that. Especially if you are in Christ, you are sealed. Yes, you may have done some things this week that you're not proud of. But I doubt any of you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I doubt any of you have done anything worthy of Christ saying, I no longer love you. And yet we struggle, don't we? That is evidence that we are concerned that this free stuff ain't what it's cracked up to be. And so, Paul is trying to help the, the Jews, in particular, understand that, that no, it is in fact free. It is, it is yours as gifts. It really is as simple as it sounds, but once you are united in Christ, and you're going to become more and more of the character of God, remember, God's righteousness is uh, for us to display his character in the world, that's where it gets costly. But costly in what sense? Costs us our pride. Costs us the ability to think we're awesome. Uh, costs us some time. But, but ultimately, it's all gain. It really is. To be in Christ is all gain. And so he's trying to help them understand that so that they will continue on mission. And they won't require, and Galatians looms in the shadows here. Remember when, when the Galatian church comes in to the fold through, through Paul's ministry. Some Judaizers swoop in and say, mm, I'm glad you believe in Jesus. I'm glad you believe the gospel. However, wouldn't it be better if you added all the other stuff to that? Like circumcision and the keeping of the festivals and all these different things. And remember, Paul was sharp. He came in hard. In fact, he, he said some cuss words in Greek, as it turns out. And spoke very harshly. And so it's very important that we recognize this is on Paul's mind and heart, and he sees the eternal cost. He sees the gravity of the situation. And so as we step into this, remember he's coming out of the verses in Hosea where he talks about, I will make a people who are not my people my people, which is a reference to the Gentiles. So he's constantly trying to help them understand the dynamic between the two of them. And so here he's going to turn back to Israel, and he's going to warn them yet again out of love. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. And then he, he stitches together Isaiah 10, 20 through 23, and then Isaiah 1, 4 through 20, 
He says it this way, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Again, that sounds harsh to our ears if, if we think the Israelites were pretty good people, like us, right? Just good, red-blooded Israelites. And, 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 and if we think that God's holiness is less than what it is. So yes, that sounds harsh to us, but if you look at what they were doing to one another and what it was going to cost generations of people, which it did, judgment was the only just move outside of redeeming them. And had he not saved some of them through his predestining grace, there would be none of them. Because, just like us, we would burn it all straight to the ground. And so... He warns them of this, and he says, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Now, do remember, uh, in, in the backdrop of these things, all the prophets who had come to both the north and the south kingdom to warn them over and over and over again for several hundred years before his judgment finally comes in, in, in them being carried into exile. And so it's not as if the Lord showed up one day and said, you guys are acting like fools, kill them all. No, he had graciously cried out to his people over and over and over again. And they were hard of heart and hard of hearing. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If you would, hold your place there in Romans 9 and flip over to Isaiah 10. Let's look at verses 20 through 23 to get a little more of the context of what he's saying. Now, at the beginning of chapter 10, let me just throw this out to you. He says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. So he's talking about the lawmakers and the law keepers, the people in charge, essentially, those who should have had influence. They were encouraging this behavior. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. That's the description of the people. That's the condition of their heart. That's where they are. Verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So what he's saying is they will no longer be dependent on the, the one who's carried them into captivity. Now, you, you, could, you could put this into spiritual language as well. Romans 6, they will no longer be sins to, uh, slaves of sin. They will no longer be uh, agents of the devil himself. Instead, they're going to trust in the Lord in truth. It says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed. And listen to this. Listen to the qualification. Overflowing with righteousness. What? It means that his judgment, is essentially overflowing with righteousness. It is the most right thing to do is to call it, to no longer allow the poor and the widow and the orphan and the marginalized to be mistreated by the powerful. 
But, but notice, this isn't just a social construct. It includes that. But, but importantly, includes their spiritual redemption as remnant. So that they would become more like God to display his character in the world. And it says, for the Lord of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, what's important about this is this is, remember, Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking in before either of the northern or southern kingdom have gone into exile. The north, it's soon. If, if they may have already gone, depending on where he's speaking in that latter half of the 8th century. But this is a warning. Right? This is not, we're not, he's not reading what has happened. He's not telling them it's happening now. He's warning them. And you do know that a warning is a gracious thing, right? So they could have repented. They could have risen up and said, Lord, ashes and, and sackcloth and ashes. And they could have said, we will change, O oh Lord. Forgive us, please. Is that what they did? No. It is not what they did. Even when they had the example of the North Kingdom, this is, he's, he's a prophet of the Southern Kingdom, even after the North Kingdom is carried into exile. And they see that God don't play. It's like, ah, but, you know, we got, the, we got King David, right? Like, we got the temple. Surely God is, who is present with us would not harm what is his. Surely he would not put an end to a church, right? He wouldn't declare something Ichabod, would he? Yes. He would, but only after patience and kindness and forgiveness and the opportunity for us to repent has been, by his lights, exhausted. And even then, he's so gracious, he will preserve a remnant from that group. If you would, flip over to Isaiah chapter 1. And this is the grand introductory sermon to the book of Isaiah. It is critical if you ever want to understand Isaiah, that you pay close attention to what is being said in these initial verses. We're going to look at verses 4 through 20. I have preached this here before, so I'm not going to re-preach it now, but I just want to follow the flow. While there's some strong language, notice what the invitation is and to whom the invitation is being made. Picking up verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Now listen, they're not stubbing their toe and cussing. They're harming image bearers. They are doing destruction that, it, that is going to cover generations. This isn't light. This isn't, this isn't silly, right? They didn't, they didn't binge watch the wrong show on Netflix. They didn't have that back then, but, but had they. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So this is the audience. Why will you be struck down? Great question. Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He's saying you're wounded and you're not even taking care of where you are wounded. You're not even acknowledging you have a problem, much less recognizing that the solution is God's grace alone. 
Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's, a des it's as desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I don't know if you've ever been in a lodge in a cucumber field, but it ain't much. Based on what he's saying here, I ain't never seen one of those. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, what does that mean? That means utterly destroyed because of the wickedness. If you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham tries to argue with God, and God listens. Hey, come, please, save it if there are 50 righteous people. 25. 10. Couldn't find 10. Had to destroy it in total. And so that's what, that's what the nation of Israel would have become had God not intervened in his grace. You may say, why are you intervening in his grace in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, for one, we don't know that he didn't try. And he had Abram, a patriarch, Abraham at the time, arguing on its behalf as a supposed mediator. He just couldn't provide what was necessary to save them. Only Christ can. And he goes on, hear the word of the Lord. And this is, this is beautiful uh, in, in, in its preachability. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What did he just say? You have no righteousness among you. And if I don't intervene, if something doesn't change, this is your fate. I'm warning you. Listen. Pay attention. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So in essence, he just said, all of your religious activity is meaningless as just a pure act, right? So, so we can sometimes say, you know, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. Um, kind of, but not, no, not for long. Right? I get it. you got to show up. But here's the beauty of God. If you showed up this morning and you really didn't want to be here, just be honest about that in your heart. Say, Lord, I don't really want to be here this morning. It's hot. They ain't fixed the air in this joint. It's communion. We don't know what time we're getting out of here. Cam's, he, he's, he's wound up. He's now been here two weeks in a row, and, and the train ain't slowing down. Okay? Right? Like, like we, we think we have to act in a certain way as if God needs us to pretend to be something that we're not or feel something we don't and to offer something that he's really uninterested in because he said it's, it's kind of like when we talked about Job. Job had this commodified exchange relationship with God to keep him away. Sometimes that's what we do religiously. I'll, I'll show up, I'll go through the motions, I'll, I'll pray a little bit, this, that, and the other, 
and, and maybe God won't give me cancer. Hopefully I will have earned something from God because all this free stuff makes me nervous. Listen to how God responds to all that. Now, it sounded pretty harsh so far, have Like, wow, this is your opening sermon in Isaiah. I wonder why people would read on. Well, here's one. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you may say, well, some of that sounded like work, like washing and reasoning together and doing good things. Well, the, the, the emphasis is on coming to God first to reason. First, you must lay down what you have done. That's called repentance, right? And that is the, the primary act of faith is surrender. Faith is not something that we do. It is what we give up and for what that we recognize is not based on what we do or who we are, but who God is. It is essentially a passive act. And I'm not even comfortable with the word act. It's just passive. But that ought result in something. True repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Think about in terms of an abusive situation. Right? You have one spouse abusing another or a parent abusing a child. Is it repentance to just keep saying you're sorry but to continue to land the blows or say the things that are destructive? Is that, is that repentance? It is, and I understand it's a process, Right? But what is the weight of that repentance if nothing ever changes behaviorally? If there's no evidence that that, that being sorry has, has turned into some display of God's character in the world. What good are God's people in a world that desperately need, that is just convulsing with suffering? I mean, I understand we're so upset about um, uh, things that are... Uh, that we throw under the umbrella of woke or social justice or these other things. But what good is a church in a world that doesn't seem to care about any of those things, though God says he does? Now, part of the reason we have the problems that we have is because in a vacuum, somebody's going to rise up to try to fix the problem which is some measure of the evidence of God's common grace. We may not like the solutions, but we need to look to ourselves first and say, well, where were we? Now, to be fair to God, there's always been a remnant. There's always been churches that have been involved in the, the, the undoing of the sinful things in the world, right? And that's part of the outworking of the gospel. We still need, everybody has to come into the kingdom the same way, right? How? By God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. There's no amount of us making the world a better place that negates that necessity. Okay? So don't, don't ever try to come at me and say, you are, you are offering something other. No, I'm not. Or you can come at me and try it. But I'm telling you, I'm not. However, we who are of that syllogism, who are defined by that truth, 
should care about what's happening to people in our world and in our various spheres of influence. We should seek the good of our friends and neighbors. We should uh, care that others are suffering, that there's oppression in the world. I'm so disturbed. There's a, a video out of Greenville, South Carolina. And my wife could tell you, sometimes I'm not too bright. There's stuff I shouldn't look at because of what it does to my soul. And this one's particular to me because of my service at the rescue mission. But there was a group of young men. I think they were, based on the circumstance, drug dealers. But, but these, these kids were 18 to 20. And they were going around to the various homeless encampments and videoing themselves beating these homeless folks unconscious. Just the indignity. And guess what rose up in my heart? I did not pray for their souls. I wanted to get in the car. They've already been arrested, so I couldn't go find them, which is good. But that's what rose up in my heart. Not, not grace, but severe justice. That's not good, by the way. I'm admitting to you, so don't clip that part out and say, Cameron just wants to kill people who beat up homeless people. No, that's not all I want. In fact, it grieved me that that was my first response. That I grabbed the sword instead of, like being like God, giving warning. And praying for and longing for these young men to not suffer the full weight. They should suffer the consequence in this world. I don't want them to perish for eternity. And th that story exposed, I'm not there yet. And I need to get there. I'm still pretty mad. Because it's horrible. These helpless people. And so, it is important that we see that... Who and whose we are must be reflected in our character in the world. It should be reflected in our desire to see things made right, not because we can make it heaven on earth. God's already told us, you ain't doing that. Try as you might, you're not going to get that from here. However, you should give people glimpses and moments where I allow of what it could look like. You should give people intimations of what the new heavens and the new earth could look like. But remember, it's still through a glass darkly, and it's only partial. You're not going to get there through your own effort. And so here, Paul has reminded them that if God had not intervened in his predestining grace, there would be none of them to talk to. And then he goes on. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. Now again, you can't just hear that word Gentile and not be moved by what he says about the Gentiles in chapter 1. Right? Remember who these people were. They were sexual deviants. They were doing all manner of things that we find deeply offensive. And yet God did not say to them, you are out. No, he intervened. And such were some of them. And brought them into the kingdom. How? Through his grace in Christ alone by faith alone. And see, if we don't get that that work continues today among sinners, that God's grand desire is some of the people that we think are ruining our good world as if we had not done a good bit of damage before they had an opportunity. That they are ruining this good world that we... We want to just do away with them instead of see them come into the kingdom. It, it would gall us something fierce, I'm afraid. If all of a sudden, if all of a sudden the Lord began to work amongst atheistic white supremacists, 
And they, they come in here, and they haven't yet gotten their, their swastika tattoos taken care of, right? It's going to take a while. And will we help them with that? What, what will we do? you got to imagine that they're, they're, they're probably still going to be a fairly rough crowd for a season. It's going to smell like oxen in here. Or let's say that, that the Lord began to work in, in some atheistic Marxists. <gasps> they may come in with some of their social ideas and suggest that we might share stuff for a while. Or if he were to begin to work among a community that has transitioned and mutilated itself and solved not the first problem that they have, would we walk with them? Would we love them? Would we be excited and moved that the glory of God is unfolding? Because that is akin to what happened in the Roman church. And do we hear what Paul is saying? That we might actually be the bigger problem. That some part of who we are, or better said, who we are not acting like in this world, is of greater damage than any of those people I've just mentioned. As hard as that is for us to understand, and as much as we would like to sit, you would like to sit down with me and show me the math. That's not what it's about. It's about what, what it is ultimately doing generationally. It's what it's about, what it's doing to God's holiness, his glory. And so, he's reminding them again, these Gentiles, and again, every time you hear Gentile, you can go back and read chapter 1, so you're, you get the full weight of, man, these were, these were some nasty, rough, foul people. And here they are. He says, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. And this is a passage that is stitched together from three different places in Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So notice, he, he's, he's telling them, you, you, you tried... But you tried in a way that was completely antithetical to my grace. You tried in a way that would make you the hero of the story. You tried in a way that would make you better than other people around you instead of recognizing that any form of superiority complex is devastating. And so, so he, he's not telling them it's over, and he's not telling them they're out. What's he telling them? Repent. Repent. And, and be free. Sure, it can't be that simple. You had us sacrificing stuff. And you had us keeping all these holidays. Uh-uh. I ain't giving none of that up. You're going to give me credit for all that I've done. And then we'll, we'll go from there. I'll quit doing all that stuff. But before I do, before I change, you better give me something. Give me credit. And so he unpacks for them, essentially, the verses that point forward to the coming Christ. So if you would hold your place and flip quickly to Isaiah 28, we'll be in verses 14 through 22. I'll move quickly through these, but I want you to see where he's, where he's arcing toward ultimately. 
Isaiah 28, picking up verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. What's a scoffer? People who say, that can't be true. That can't be right. Free can't be good. You scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we've made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming wit passes through, it will not come to us. So basically they're saying, we're above the law. We're above God's judgment. We're above God's grace, as it were. For we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, meaning they will not have to run. They will not have to uh, strive. They will not have to fear. What a gift this cornerstone is. If you would, flip on over to Isaiah 8. We'll be in verses 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So he just said, fear the Lord. Don't, don't go the way these folks are going. Don't call stuff conspiracy that they call conspiracy. Don't be afraid of the world as they are afraid of the world. Did that not just preach? How many of you are in fear right now because of you of what you think the direction the world is, is going? As if, as if God didn't tell us. How many of you are like, man, this, this, this room right now, this is climate change. We're dying. <laughs> we can't go like this. Right? There's all kinds of stuff we're afraid of, and, and not without some measure of... There's some wisdom in being concerned about things, but we act as if there's no solution. We act as if there's no hope other than our shrillness, other than our running panic or hiding. It's not what he's calling us to do. He's got people. If you would, turn on over to Isaiah 49, and this is where he's ultimately landing. This is verses 22 and 23. This is what he's been arcing toward the entirety of the chapter of Romans 9. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And so that is the question essentially before us this morning is, are we dependent on and firmly founded on Christ the cornerstone? Are we, are we looking to the Lord 
for how we should then live in this broken and fallen world. Are we, are we seeking to be ambassadors of reconciliation? Or are we prophets of doom? Listen to what Calvin says about this. He says, But oh, how they stumble at Christ, who trust in their works. It is not difficult to understand, for except we own ourselves to be sinners, void and destitute of any righteousness of our own, we obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in this, that to us all he is light, life, resurrection, Righteousness and healing. But how is all these things except that he illuminates the blind, restores the lost, quickens the dead, raises up those who are reduced to nothing, cleanses those who are full of filth, cures and heals those infected with diseases? Nay, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness, we in a manner contend with the power of Christ. For his office is no less to beat down all the pride of the flesh than to relieve and comfort those who labor and are wearied under their burden. The question that I have for you is, is there any righteousness of your own you're clinging to? Is there anything for which you kind of say to God, look, I appreciate Jesus, appreciate all you do for me, but I need you to recognize some things, right? I've often talked about the difference between Susan and I I was a radical anti-theist. I could say, look at how far I came compared to her. Look at all that I had to endure and overcome. You need to acknowledge that, Lord. I get it. You saved me, and that's great. But look at how far I had to come. She could say, I have loved you all of my days. What do I need with your free grace? I have given you my love from the start. I'm not really a sinner. And look at Cameron. Look at the distance that fool had to come. And here I've been here. I've worshipped way more days than him. I've read my Bible way more than him. She could say that. And that would be wrong. Just as I would be wrong. And just as there are things that you need to ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Are there ways, Lord, in which I am trying to earn your love still? One of the places you can know that you're struggling is any place you feel the need to defend yourself. You know there's no defense except Christ. If you, if you plead anything other than Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, you are, in essence, demanding your righteousness be acknowledged in some form or fashion. And if what I just said makes you defensive, well, there you go. And then, and then are you able, another way to kind of understand where you are on this is can you repent without qualification? Can you, when you have offended someone else, just say, I am sorry that I have offended you without going, but you're a little salt. Or, but you misunderstood me. But, you needed to, to think about it differently. That's one. Or any other way in which when you repent, you feel this need to, to, to try to, to, to grovel for or maintain some shred of a dignity that is but a spider's web to you as garments. Any of you ever tried to clothe yourself with a spider's web? 
bad. No, it's not public friendly. And so it's very important that instead we plead the fullness of the righteousness of Christ that has, that has been granted to us through the free gift. It is not, not bad because it's free. In fact, it's, it's grander than eternity that it's free. It is eternity that it's free to us. And so it is worthy of us examining ourselves but before we go further on in Romans so that we are prepared for when, when Paul begins to speak to us about how we are to participate in this grand mission that God is on. That we are to be the instruments in his redemptive hands. It's one of the reasons why we've been doing as benediction, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I hope you paid attention, particularly last week, to the formative language, especially as it paired with him talking about the potter and the clay. Why would you not want to be shaped by a loving God? Into his image, when the description of him is so good. Yes, we doubt we have to, how do we explain some of the suffering in this world? But we can lay those doubts before the throne as well. What a gift, after hearing what we've heard, that we get to come before the table, or come to the table. And it's very important that you hear that there is nothing for you to bring to this table. It is, it is hospitably offered to you as free gifts to nourish you, to build you up. And so the only thing that keeps you from the table is if you're not a believer. You're, not, you're just receiving a morsel that can't satisfy. And if you are unforgiving towards someone else, that is indicative of you don't understand the gospel. And it would not be wise for you to partake of the table. But for everybody else who knows themselves to be a sinner in need of Christ, who recognizes that it is in Christ alone that we are redeemed by God's grace alone through faith alone, well, you are welcome. Maybe you stayed up too late last night. Maybe you, you cut somebody off this morning. Maybe you were rude to one of your family members. I understand. Repent. Repent while you hold the, the bread and, and the juice. Repent and be free. Repent as one who's been set free in Christ. Let not the devil keep you from being nourished in the greatest truth this world has ever known and will ever know. And remember that on the night that he was with his disciples and knew he was heading to the cross and knew that they were going to mess it up royally. He, he wouldn't hardly uh, get out. He, he, they messed it up in the garden, if you remember. They started messing up even before then. They were wanting to burn down cities and all kind of fun stuff. But to that crowd, he said, listen, I want you to do this and I want you to have something that will constantly remind you of my hospitality and my goodness to you and the freeness of the gift. He took bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And in that givenness, he was essentially telling them that there would never be a need for them to suffer shame or guilt anymore. Because their sins, past, present, and future, would be essentially taken on by him. And the, the wrath due those sins would be satisfied in his body, in his, in his death. So that we would never again have to fear that going before the throne of grace. That we would always go because it is freely offered to us. Not cheaply, freely. And as part of that meal, he reached over and took the cup and he raised it up. And he said, this this is my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is language that comes from Jeremiah, which would tell them you have been transformed and are being transformed by 
by the blood of Christ that, that will flow in you in resurrection power. And it was also a, a signal to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, when you receive, if you would, meditate on the grandeur of the free gift. Maybe even those last couple of questions. Is there something, Lord, that, that I am trying to offer you so that the gift ain't all free? Is there some way in which I'm trying to put forward some righteousness? Is there something that, that I can't repent of without qualification? And, and, and let the Spirit work. Now, you, you, you may not get that all worked out before you take, but you, you having asked the question is a sign of humility, and so you need to take to be nourished to receive the answer and to, and to process. 